Good morning, everybody. It's a pleasure to be with you on a cool, crisp morning in Edinburgh. I was up early enough to see the sunrise. I think it must have been the jet lag from coming up from <laughs> London. No, maybe not. But it's lovely to be with you. I love coming here. I love this church. I love what you stand for. Uh, I'm a big fan for Dave and Libby and the team and all that they're doing. So it's a real privilege to be with you this morning. Um, and I want to show you a little video to kind of kick off our time together. Uh, today is a day of premieres. You've got your brand new CD, um, which is out today. But I want to show you, I guess for the first time in Scotland, our little video clip, which we think is a little better than the, um, the John Lewis advert. I don't know if you've seen that. This is our little Christmas clip. It was made by a friend of ours uh, whose um, contribution to Home for Good, he's not in a position to foster or adopt, but he gives us his skill and his talent. So if that's something that you might have that you might be able to help us with, um, there's a little card that you can fill in. It's called Count Me In. And um, maybe you've got a skill or a talent uh, that you'd like to offer to us as this film will uh, maybe inspire you how art can help us uh, change the way that people see vulnerable children. So, uh, are we ready to roll? Can we show the little Christmas movie? Go. It was 11 o'clock at night and there's a knock at the door. I'm still living at home, I'm 14 years old and I'm living with mum and dad. Somehow our mum gets to the door first and she opens it to reveal a huge man taking up the entire door frame. He's got a crazy story to tell. He's just arrived in England from Germany into Gatwick Airport. And as he's passing through customs, he realises he has something to declare. His undying love for the girl that he's been spending the entire journey speaking to. The only problem is this is the dark ages, before Snapchat and Instagram and Twitter, he hasn't even got her phone number. So there he is, in Brighton, going door to door, his intent on visiting 120,000 homes until he finds her. My mum hears this story and decides to welcome him in, makes him a hot mug of cocoa, and then says, well, why don't you have a bed for the night? This is bad news for me because my bedroom door is opposite the lounge where this strange man is going to be sleeping. So I take every single bit of furniture that I can move and I build a barricade to keep this guy out of my room. And I'm under the covers and I've got my little Swiss army penknife for protection. Somehow I survive the night, I wake up the next morning, I'm still alive, I haven't been murdered in my sleep. As I unbarricade the door, I realise all our worldly possessions are still there and so is this huge German man. My mum makes him a hearty breakfast and then sends him on his way, on his quest to find the girl of his dreams. I think about that story every time I go to one of my kids' nativity plays. You know how the story goes. It's the middle of the night and they're going door to door, trying to find somewhere for the bedraggled Mary and the sweaty Joseph and sometimes a pantomime donkey to find rest for them. But they hear it over and over again. There's no room. There's no room at the inn. I like to believe if I was there in Jesus' day, I'd have made sure there was space, not just in my outhouse or the, the shed or the stable, but room in my home for the Son of God to be born, to be the Saviour of the world. Or maybe when Jesus is a refugee running from Herod and trying to escape into Egypt, I'd have made space in my life for him. Or when he's hungry or thirsty or needing shelter later in his life, I'd have made sure he'd have been okay. I'd have made the room. But my track record tells a different story. I'm better at building barricades than I am at welcoming the wanderer. 
And yet Jesus said, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. In other words, the test of whether we've understood the Christmas story is whether we'll make room in our lives for the vulnerable. Will we welcome them in and give them the help that they need? Because when we do, we welcome Jesus. Our family never heard from a German man again. Highlights of believe as a German-English couple living happily ever after thanks to the love of a little Indian woman who offered hospitality to a stranger when he needed it most. Well, hope you liked it. You can share it on social media if you follow Home for Good or me. We'd love to help people connect the Christmas story with the story of God's hospitality. So um, see if you can help us along. Right, I'm going to show you a picture that might mean there's a little bit of debate and discussion. That's totally acceptable. And um, let me show it to you. And could you just ask your neighbour what colour the shoe is and uh, what colour the laces are? Let's get this audience participation going. Someone on this side, put your hand up, tell me what you see. Yep, what do you see? Pink, pink shoe, white laces. Who sees pink shoe, white laces? Okay, who doesn't see pink shoe, white laces? Great, what do you see? Aqua blue, turquoise. Who sees that? Weird, what's going on? It reminds me of this picture, do you remember it? Oh yeah, classic, remember? Uh, Amazon product placement photo, uh, it's a dress, hands up if you see white and gold. Ha ha ha, that proves you are Anglican. Because <laughs> you see white, you know, flowing robes and gold crowns, that's the kind of Anglican thing. Hands up if you see blue and black. Yes! Now be honest, you're Baptist, aren't you? Because <laughs> you see water everywhere. There's something weird going on, isn't there? We're looking at the same picture, but because of something internal to us, we see different colours. Um, some people tell me it's because of the way that your brain processes colour, that you're looking for a white balance. If you're good at photography, you know what that is. You're trying to figure out what sunlight is and then working out what every other colour is in relation to it. But I think this is a good picture of what it means to be a Christian. Becoming a Christian means that you and I, we, we look at the world, this, we look at the same world that everybody else is looking at. But because of something internal to us, because of the good news of Jesus, because of the grace of God, because of the work of the Holy Spirit, because of the gospel, we see something different. Becoming a Christian doesn't just change 10% of your time or your money. Becoming a Christian changes the way that you see everything and therefore how we live as we see that world very differently. Does that make sense to you? Becoming a Christian is a systemic shift, not just a bolt-on extra to what you do to the rest of your week or the rest of your money. So let me test that a little bit. I'm going to show you a picture, and um, I'm going to tell you what most people see when they look at that picture, and then I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to ask you what you think God sees when he looks at this picture. So here we go. This is a little boy. I'm going to call him Robert, because we're in Scotland, it's a good Scottish name. I can't tell you his real name because Robert's currently in care. 
In fact, he's been in foster care most of his life. Um, for most of that time, he has been available for adoption. He's legally available for adoption. Trouble is, um, he's in a book. It's a book called Be My Parent. It's a book you're allowed to look in if you've been approved to be an adopter. But we tell you as much detail as we can about Robert because we don't want people to go into adoption uh, optimistic or naive or, or romantic. We want them to go in with their eyes wide open. And so we have to tell you that Robert's over five years old, that Robert is um, struggling with speech delay, which means he can't communicate in the way that he wants to. And so sometimes Robert gets frustrated at school and that works its way out as difficult to manage behaviour. So people read the little statement about Robert, they see his face and they say, you know what, that kid's not for me. It's not the kind of kid I'm, I'm after, really. That kid is trouble. That kid's trouble now. Imagine what he's going to be like when he grows up. He's going to be even more trouble. And so Robert waits, because most people look at Robert and they write over him the words unadoptable. Robert's not alone. Robert represents thousands of children currently waiting to be adopted in the UK care system. What does God see when he looks at Robert? If you're new to church or new to faith, have a guess. The God we've been singing about this morning, the God of compassion and grace and mercy, have a guess what God sees. I'm going to make this competitive. Uh, I know you had a good game of rugby yesterday. Congratulations. Come on, well done. So let's see if we can equal the score. Uh, I'm going to set this team against that team. We're going to include the upper stories as well. And you guys can split yourself down the middle. Have a chat with your neighbour. Have, have a think of three things you think God sees when he looks at Robert. Are you ready? Have a go. Silent meditation is okay. Are you ready? I, I call this speed theology. It's like speed dating, but without the embarrassment. Hopefully. See how you get on. And uh, I, if I can see your hand, I'll, I'll come up and down as well. Okay, so let's start on this side. Uh, anyone got an observation? What do you think God sees? Yes, please, front row. The, he sees a precious child. I think that's really important. In fact, you could put a scripture on that. My, my daughter, she's 15 years old, um, and in her room she has a mirror, and on top of the, the mirror there's a verse from Psalm 139. It says, fearfully and wonderfully made. I want my daughter to know that about herself. Because there's a lot of pressure, isn't there, on teenagers about how they should look or how they should dress or what should, they should be doing. And as she looks in the mirror, I want her to know that she's precious because she's fearfully and wonderfully made. That's true for my daughter, that's true for you. Even if you don't feel very precious, God sees you as a person of worth. But if that's true for you and me, that's also true for Robert too. Really good, thank you. One, Neil, do you have a response, ladies and gentlemen? What have we got? Yes. God loves his child, great. You know, the, the most famous verse in the Bible, John three sixteen. for God so loved people from middle-class families. For God to love white people. For God to love Westerners. No, for God so loved 
the world. Robert is loved by God because every single person on this planet, whatever their history, whatever their uh, genealogy, whatever their abilities, whatever their gender, whatever their sexuality, whatever their race, every single person is loved by God. doesn't mean everyone's responded to that love, but God has love for everybody. So Robert is loved by God. Great. One all. Is there a response? Do you have any more? No pressure. The Baptist did really good at this. Yes. God sees himself. Brilliant. God sees that Robert is made in his image. Look, on my phone, I've probably got a thousand pictures of my family. At the end, I'll be at the back uh, with my team from Home for Good, Lucy and Kirsty. Good to see you. Oh, look, nice wave. Thank you. Um, they are awake. Excellent. Um, I've got some pictures of my family, and you might want to see them. That would be fantastic. Um, I, I know this is Edinburgh, but imagine when you see a picture of my family, you decide to spit on my camera, spit on my phone. At one level, it, it doesn't matter. This is a Galaxy S7 Edge, <laughs> which is a waterproof phone. <laughs> so your saliva is getting nowhere near my family. Or even worse, let's say, you know, maybe you've spent time in other places. You have toxic saliva that gets into the inner workings of my phone. Kills my phone. Never mind, I'm backed up on the cloud. <laughs> so no harm done. But symbolically, what you do to the image of my family is an indicator of how you feel about my family. So if this boy, Robert, is made in the image of God, what we do or don't do for him is an indicator of how we feel about the God that he images. Does that make sense? It's a very profound thought. Thank you. Uh, anyone on this side? I'm sorry, I'm looking above as well as below trying to capture you. Come on, come on, balcony, you got one? Yeah. Potential. Too right. Most people are looking at Robert and they've written his future based on his history, aren't they? They're saying because he's had a difficult start, his future's going to be rubbish. That is not a Christian way of looking at anything, is it? We believe in something called redemption, which means that your past does not dictate your future. God looked at us in our sin and our brokenness, and what did he say? It's rubbish, I can't do anything with it. God saw potential. God saw people that could receive his love and be transformed, didn't he? That's why I'm here today. I don't know where I'd be without God in my life, but God has turn my life around it's still broken and needs fixing but he's turned it around I'm so different now because of the grace of God so when God looks at Robert I think he sees a plan a future a hope but I don't know if Robert knows that yet really good I think we're going to call it a draw is that okay <laughs> I like draws because everyone's happy at the end you know what there's another thing we could say well two things we could say about Robert the first is this I think we can say God is a, uh, Robert is especially loved by God. Now you're going, Chris, hold on, I thought you said God so loved the world. How can you say that God has particular attention to Robert? I, I was talking to a paramedic the other day. He says that when they come onto a scene after there's been a serious accident and there might be numerous casualties, they do something called triaging, don't they? They work out who is most in need so they can serve them first. Not that they're more important, but their need is more urgent. Does that make sense? God says when he looks at the world, there are three groups of people that he's particularly on the alert for. The widow, the orphan, and the stranger. Not that God, God has um, 
more love for them. But he has a particular love for them because they're in need. Robert, to you, is a stranger. He's separated from his family. But he's, he's an orphan in the biblical sense, in that he's not living with his family. And so he's especially in need. Now, we know that. Because Robert represents thousands of children in care waiting to be adopted. And when those kids don't get the permanent families that they need, the church meets them again. We meet them again when we do work amongst the homeless. So many of our homeless population in the UK are young boys and girls that have aged out of foster care. We meet them when we do prison ministry. 50% of the male prison population in the UK are young men that have aged out of foster care. We meet them when we try to end sexual exploitation and people trafficking. Because in some areas it's 30%, in other areas it's 70% of young women who are working in the sex industry are young women that have aged out of care. And I think it's great that we're helping them once the system's, you know, beating them up and spatting them out. We need to help there. But you know what? We could have helped when they were three, four, five years old. Their life could have been a lot different. Again, not, not in an optimistic way, not in a naive way. But surely, if there are Christians and loving families pouring grace into their lives, we will see some change. There's one other thing we could have said about Robert, and you'll need your Bible again to be able to see that. We had that Bible passage uh, read to us at the beginning. Maybe you can see why my book is called God is Stranger as we read this passage again. I'm going to read it all the way through this time, and, um, and then I'm just going to make some observations. But I wonder if you hear what this passage might have to say about Robert. It's page 995, and it's the parable of the sheep and the goats. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come. You who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was ill, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord... When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you ill or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was ill and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger, or needing clothes or ill or in prison, and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is a really difficult passage, isn't it? This is a really controversial passage. I get in trouble when I read this passage with conservative Christians because they hear that this seems to be talking about salvation by works. I need to look at that in a moment. 
But I get in trouble with progressive Christians because Jesus is talking about heaven, but he's also talking about hell. We don't like it when Jesus talks about hell. That reminds us of the guy in Oxford Street in London who's shouting with a megaphone, telling everyone they're going to turn or burn. Just trying to scare people into the kingdom. But that's not the tone of voice I hear from Jesus. Jesus is warning us because he loves us. Look, we have six kids in our house, three birth kids and three fostered and adopted children. And when new children come into our house, we often have ground rules. One of the ground rules in our house is this, do not lick the plug sockets. <laughs> Why do I have such a mean and horrible rule? It's just because I love these kids and I want to warn them of the danger ahead of them. I'm not trying to scare them, I'm trying to warn them. In the same way, Jesus talks about heaven and hell because he loves us enough to warn us. But what about this salvation by works thing? I've been told by some Christians that Jesus really didn't get the gospel right. He needed to read a bit more Paul. Now, I'm old school. I believe that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That means all of it's true. That means the Jesus bit and the Paul bit, and there's no conflict. I'm also old school. I think Jesus got the gospel right. Is that, is that a fair assumption? I don't know you guys. So I'm just going to put that out there. Jesus does not mean to say that we're saved by our good deeds. Let me explain this. Look, I used to do statistics at A-level. I did so badly at it, I got a U. I think you get a U if you fail to turn up at the exam. I turned up at the exam and still got a U. Friends of mine tell me that when it comes to statistics, you've got to be careful not to confuse correlation with causation. Best illustration I can think of. You know around Scotland there are these huge wind farms. Have you seen them? Those massive Mercedes signs stuck in the middle of the, uh, the wilderness. Don't know how Mercedes got the deal. You know, <laughs> Audi and Skoda wind farms would have been good. But anyway, there they are. Have you noticed that the faster that those wind turbines spin, the windier it gets? Have you noticed that? <laughs> it's odd, isn't it? All this kind of problems with El Nino and all the kind of uh, wind turbulence we've had. Just turn the fans off. There is a correlation, isn't there, between wind speed and wind turbine speed. But if you get your causation wrong, you end up saying something stupid. There is a correlation between good works and salvation. But if you get your, your causation wrong, you end up saying something stupid. We are not saved by our good works. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, Paul says, For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. Not from yourselves. This is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. Couldn't say it any clearer. You are not saved by being a good foster parent, adoptive parent, street pastor, cat worker, you name it. You're not saved by those things. But Ephesians 2 verse 10 says that we are God's handiwork or craftsmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. We are not saved by our good works, but we were saved for good works. Becoming a Christian means that you receive grace from God. But it's a cascade of grace. The grace comes into your life, it changes you, and then it makes you want to change the lives of other people. You want to bless them with the mercy and grace that you have received. You want your life to look like Jesus now, don't you? 
That's what it means to be a Christian, a little Christ. And so Jesus gives us this little parable to wake us up. This parable says, don't think coming to church, singing some songs, however beautifully they were sung, listening to some Bible teaching, reading the Bible. Don't think that's the end of the Christian life. All of that is good to equip you to serve God in his world by demonstrating grace to the most vulnerable. This is the clearest parable Jesus teaches about Judgment Day. And he says the Judgment Day is ultimately not about what you say you believe or how fervently you feel it in your heart, but whether your faith is worked out into life by caring for vulnerable people. Tim Keller had a great illustration for this in his book, Generous Justice. He imagines an old woman, an elderly but very rich lady, who has only one surviving heir. The older she gets and the frailer she gets, the more often she's visited by her young nephew. And she's not sure whether her young nephew really loves her or whether it's a case of where there's a will, there's a way. How will she know? She asks him, you know, why, why do you do this? Well, it's just the kind of person I am, Granny. She's not sure. So what does she do? She takes off her fine clothes. She replaces them for rags and then goes and sits at the door of this young nephew's house to see how he will respond to a person who's genuinely in need. Jesus doesn't turn up in all his glory to meet us day by day because we'd serve him. You know, if you bumped into a guy on the street whose face was shining, uh, who, who didn't need food because he could turn bread uh, into enough food for 5,000 people, or what, you, you still might want to offer him some mercy and love and grace. You might want to. But Jesus knows that there's a better way to test what's in our hearts, to test our faith. He comes to us day by day in guise of the lonely, the lost, the broken, the hurting, the hungry, the thirsty, the sick and the stranger. You saw in my video, I was an optimistic young person. I used to think that if I was there back then at the nativity scene, Jesus and Mary and Joseph, they wouldn't be sheltering out in some stable somewhere. They'd be in my house receiving the welcome that they deserve. I used to think that if I was there at the crucifixion, do you remember when Jesus asked the world for something as he was hanging on the cross? Do you remember he said, I am thirsty. Do you remember what the world brought Jesus? We brought him wine vinegar. That's the cheap stuff. That's the stuff that, that my mates used to get drunk on behind Sainsbury's because it's one pound for two litres. That's what the world brought Jesus as he died for the sins of the world. I'd like to have thought that I would have brought him the finest drink the world could offer. I'd bring him fine wine or whatever he wanted. I would raid my larder and give him whatever he needed. This parable tells us there's a way that we can honour Jesus. And it's not just in church. When the world comes to us in need, will we offer Jesus the best that we've got? Not just as a, a hypothetical, but an actual. So why we started Home for Good, we think Home for Good is a way that the church can respond to the needs of the most vulnerable children in our nation. They're so vulnerable, they can't even live with their own mum and dad. 
all the stats around them are, are not brilliant. But we believe with Christians like you in their lives that will love them and show them the grace that you've received from God, their lives will be different. The numbers are doable. You know, we, we think there's around 4,000 children waiting for adoption and around 9,000 more foster families needed. That means I just need one new family to foster or adopt per congregation. That's all. I don't need each of you to adopt 10 kids. I didn't bring my van with me. There isn't a special offer. If you buy my book, you get a kid free this morning. It's not how it works. I just need one new family per church. And for the rest of us as church family to wrap around them and give that family the support that they need. Friends, with your help, we can actually do it. What an offering to Jesus. Jesus, I remember. I saw you. I saw you in Robert's eyes. I saw you as someone needing grace and love and mercy. And I poured myself out because, Jesus, you're worth it. That's the response to grace from God, grace into the lives of other people.